Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jason Knight, and on each episode of this podcast, I'll be having inspiring conversations with passionate product people. If you like inspiring conversations, or indeed product people, passionate or otherwise, why not head over to onenightinproduct.com where you can find interviews with some of the finest minds in and around product management, binge the back catalogue, subscribe on your favourite podcast app, or share with your friends. And if you want to throw some spare change in my cup to help with hosting fees, well, there's a handy donate link right at the top. On tonight's episode, we marvel at the recently rediscovered Lean B2B pyramid and wonder what we might find inside it. We talk about the core concepts of the Lean B2B methodology, how it can take you from vision to product market fit, and some of the things you're going to have to deal with along the way. We also consider the different types of people that might go on that B2B journey, the pros and cons of deep industry expertise, and how you might have that winning product idea without having to sit in the bath and wait for that eureka moment. For all this and much more, please join us on One Night in Product. So, my guest tonight is Etienne Garbugli. Etienne's a multiple entrepreneur, startup founder, and author of half a bookshelf worth of business books. Etienne's originally from Canada, but has visited 61 countries in his life before recently settling in Italy, presumably looking for those fabled two pizza teams. Etienne's on a mission to meaningfully increase the success rate of B2B ventures, which may or may not be impressive depending on what the starting success rate is, but he's doing it nonetheless with his recently re-released book, Lean B2B, his Lean B2B podcast, I hear they'll take anyone, as well as his upcoming Lean B2B certification program. Hi Etienne, how are you tonight? I'm very well, yourself? I am doing wonderfully well, and I'm sure that you won't take anyone on the podcast and that I was just that aberration that makes everyone else look better. Anyway, first things first. You've got a new book out. I've got a copy of it on my vanity bookshelf, and I was very pleased to have had a chance to give it a bit of an early read. But I guess the first question I always ask a book author, or at least one that the book's actually come out, is how has that book been going so far, and how's version two been received? Uh, it's been doing pretty good, actually. So part of the uh, the challenge, because this is the first time I do a second edition of a book, so I'm trying to figure out what the right balance is between uh, introducing a new version to this, but also keeping the other one around because they don't actually uh, invalidate each other. So it's an expansion of the first one, but the first one is, is still being used by incubators, by uh, accelerators and entrepreneurs and people in organizations. So I'm trying to have a smooth transition from one to the next, which is not necessarily uh, that uh, easy when you're, uh, you're still kind of learning how to do it. I've been looking a lot at uh, some of the other uh, guests that you've had that did second edition, like Marty Kagan, for example. And it's been interesting the way they did it. So I'm trying to kind of figure out the right balance. Well, that's interesting, though, because when I spoke to Marty all those months ago, he was very much saying that version two of his book was basically a different book. And actually, I picked up a version of the original Inspired just to take a little look at that. And yeah, it was pretty different. Like, I think the way you put it, there was almost no commonality between the two, apart from maybe some of the principles. So would you say then that your book, I mean, you touched on it just then, that it's very much a progression from the original and it complements it are you saying that people should buy both books is that what you're actually saying i would not say that <laughs> i would say buy the latest version of the book because that would be a more honest answer but they're complementary so surely that means that there's something in the first book that isn't in the second or that hasn't replaced oh for sure different case studies different approaches some content that actually got removed between first version and second version but i wouldn't say buy both versions, although a lot of people did that, that would just be self-serving. And I don't think that's the best <laughs> way to, to approach uh, 
creation of content. I think it's known in B2B circles as an upsell. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'd rather upsell <laughs> to the other books. That's fair enough. Well, we'll talk about those on a different episode. But what made you decide to write that second book then? Because it can't be a trivial undertaking. I know that, you know, it took a while. We were chatting about it a little while back. I, again, I was happy to have had a chance to take a, an early peek just to give my opinions on it. But even so, it's not an easy process, right? And going through and trying to make sure that everything hangs together, updating everything, making sure that everything still fits, that you're not contradicting yourself. It's a lot of work. Yeah. So why did you decide to do that? The short answer is that the landscape changed so much. So when I was working on some, one of my startup around there and around the, just before I started writing the first edition, our voice, basically the landscape was I was approaching VCs and a lot of times they were all focused on B2C. They were trying to change what you were working on to make it more B2C friendly, even though your product was <laughs> B2B. So I was talking about enterprise, but they were trying to bring it to, okay, what if you try to have a free version of this and try to acquire a bunch of users and then do this? So it was kind of always difficult to get good advice and good opinions on B2B things because a lot of the, there had been a lot of successful B2B entrepreneurs and, and, and enterprise entrepreneurs, but a lot of their, their insights were not necessarily captured more broadly. So the landscape was a little more free back then. So there was, there was less structure. There, there were, B2B was not necessarily such a distinct thing to some extent. I remember like I approached some people to help with the, the interviews when I was doing the book. Some people are telling me, well, B2B and B2C are the same thing. Like there's no difference. Like, oh, you're... no. Yeah, and, and that didn't really jive back then. And I think that's become more and more untrue to some extent. But in other ways, it's kind of become, uh, they've, they've kind of become closer to some extent. If you look back at when I was writing the first edition in, in 2013, there were a lot less products. The, the companies, not everyone was controlling their budgets. There were no freemium models. There were no uh, free trials for everything. Uh, so it was a completely different landscape when, when companies were buying software, buying technology. So just the fact that things change, but also that there's been so many more products that have become more narrow and more focused on different, different functions, different teams, different, different types of new needs that emerge over the years. So just the landscape changed quite a bit, and that has made it more challenge of trying to gain attention and be able to speak to the right buyers and be able to cut through the noise in crowded markets. That's been the big challenge of the core thing behind this. And then from there, it's, it's, it's just the, the level of patience towards, towards new products has, has decreased significantly, yeah. as a lot of the, your, your audience will probably be able to attest. So there's a lot of things that became harder, but there's also a lot of things that became maybe not easier, but at least there's better tooling for it and there's easier ways to get around that. So just kind of trying to rearrange the, the landscape a little bit to make it a better map for today. Well, fair enough. Always good to update yourself. But you say in the intro to the book, why this book matters. It's one of your headlines. So here's your chance to tell my audience why does this book matter? And I guess, crucially, <laughs> what does it give you that other B2B books don't? Yeah. Well, I, I think there's a major disconnect between buyers and corporations and entrepreneurs. Maybe the challenge changed quite a bit, but there's still a big difference between people that have the passion and want to solve problems and want to address opportunities. And then they're stuck on the outside. They're trying to figure out, what are these opportunities? Like, what am I, what should I be working on that actually would be impactful for these organizations? And then on the other side, there's always people in organizations who are looking for an edge in terms of internal 
benefits or, or things on the market specifically. So how do you connect these two different realities? So there should be a match somewhere that's possible. So the book in itself is designed to, to help the outsiders learn how to speak the language of business so they can get in, stay in, and be able to build the right things. And on the other side, for companies, it, it helps them adopt the thinking of founders if they do want to drive their own innovation or if they're interested in, in just adopting some of the, that mindset that helps them to sophisticate their offering in terms of the market. So that's an interesting point, though, around these entrepreneurs that maybe need to have a little bit of help on the way in because maybe they've not done that before. And pretty sure it talks about this a little bit in the book. But for me, I always have this vision in my head of like a new B2B startup founder, primarily being someone who's maybe spent a bit of time in a particular industry, maybe working for the type of company that they're going to be now serving. So like, for example, they had a career in banking or working around and in and around banks, but they then decided that there was a problem that banks had that they thought that they could solve. And that's certainly something I've seen around and about on my travels, talking to people when I've interviewed for jobs, when I've got jobs. It's not an uncommon pattern. But are you saying that your book will also help people who maybe don't have any B2B background at all actually start to speak the language and understand the world of B2B and crucially the organizations that they're selling to? and kind of give them that leg up? I think it just doesn't have a choice. To some extent, there's, over the course of my journey, I've stumbled on a lot of uh, entrepreneurs who actually pivoted into B2B. So that's not at all what they were intending to work on. Yeah. But at some point, it just made sense because of things we can talk about later. But there was an easier, more demand. There was a use case that was interesting from what they had built that could actually work really well in B2B or an enterprise. For various reasons, there's people that didn't actually start out going towards B2B or didn't have the background in B2B, or they're just starting out. Maybe they're 22, they're just coming out of school, and they are starting a business. Uh, so there's a lot of different entry points into entrepreneurship, uh, B2B entrepreneurship. And it's a little bit of an un unintended uh, consequence. I didn't necessarily appreciate that as much when I wrote <laughs> the first edition. But now I'm being a little more uh, systematic about it uh, as I understand a little bit how it breaks down and how these all entrepreneurs also uh, end up uh, succeeding sometimes. Would you say the book is then aimed primarily at entrepreneurs and people that are starting their own businesses and not so much at, for example, product managers working in B2B companies that are either working really early for a bunch of entrepreneurs or maybe even working on greenfield products and expansions of product lines? Like, Is there something in there for the product people too, or is it squarely focused on entrepreneurs and startup founders? Yeah, that's what I would have said in 2014 when I, when I launched a book. I was actually very surprised with the amount of people in organizations that either adopted the book, the first edition, for just business as usual, just adding in improving their products, figuring out what to, how to address their market and how to innovate. But moving forward as well, I discovered other use case. So there's these accelerators and, and incubators using the book in their process. There is uh, innovation consultants. So there's been all these different use cases that have come up. And in a lot of ways, that's kind of what happens with products. Like you, you launch something <laughs> and it, some people either... No, you pivoted. You pivoted. Well, yeah. But like it's also like the book was recommended to people that were outside the, the sector. I have VCs looking at the book, using the book. And that's really not like a universe that I, I scoped or I, I, I tried to figure out. It just kind of happened. But it, all these, these nice new discoveries kind of open up different paths that are interesting to explore. And I've tried to address some of these these 
these needs without we're trying to diverge too much from from what the core idea of the books are yeah that makes a lot of sense but something that occurred to me while you were speaking just then was it's almost like some companies maybe if they are founded by those non-tech maybe industry expert type people that have had a bit of a career in whatever industry it is that they end up serving maybe start that company up to try and serve a need that they've identified or something that was a frustration for them. They don't really know what to do to build an effective product organization or a a startup that can serve that in a sort of tech-first way. So what they do is they just kind of stumble somewhat towards some kind of product market fit because they know a few people, they've got a little black book with some names in that they can maybe get some initial interest through. And it feels to me that a book like this can almost help to be a reset for people that maybe have found themselves hitting the limits of where they can take their initial offering, potentially. I mean, I guess the alternative view is that some of these people may be a bit dyed in the wool and they maybe don't don't get shaken off very easily. But like if they are prepared to be shaken off, maybe this can kind of help reset them and get them on course. Do you think that's a fair aim for the book? Yeah. But it's also like one thing I'm seeing is, is there's a lot of different start points for companies. Like some people have technologies that they're starting with. Some other people have just an idea. Other people have a feature set. They have a benefit. They have a couple sales that they got for something kind of fuzzy. Yeah. Like there's a lot of different starting points that kind of evolve and end up uh, opening the, the situations that kind of need to reshape a little bit what they're focused on. So just giving the, the general thesis of what makes B2B and enterprise different is already a good start point as a minimum to evaluate whether that's a right path for, for these people, but also then helping them go on the right, in the right lane so they can actually find their path. One thing I've been trying to do with my, my, this book and the, the ones before is also kind of make it a little more like a book where you, you can be the hero to some extent where you can have different <laughs> paths because it's never like, I think that's one thing you do talk about on your, your, on, on social media is, there's a lot of like that rigid thinking of like, this is the way and like, this is going to work for everybody. Like, yeah. but it's really not like that. Like there's a lot of situations where just understanding what are the levers and what are the different doors that are kind of in front of you, I think helps a lot in terms of just figuring out what you should be doing. Absolutely. And I think also it's really interesting to think of this as a way where you can, for example, as a, for example, B2B PM who's been spending a lot of time reading B2C books and consuming B2C content to actually find a book that does, at least in some regards, map out all of the differences that they are going to see between the B2C content and the B2B content, and maybe even in some ways validate the experiences of these product managers, even if they're not the founders, and even if they're a bit later on, like you say, working on business as usual or iterations or whatever it is that they're doing, just to kind of give them a bit of a a bit of confidence that what they're doing is actually okay and that the things that they're seeing even though it's at a little bit later stage are actually normal and expected yeah yeah definitely and i think that that can also help drive new growth like once you figure out like okay so i'm I'm in this kind of situation enterprise here are a few few of the challenges that i should be facing just figuring out that some of these challenges have not been addressed fully for example you've not met all the stakeholders you've not figured out uh what the best sales process should be the, the the people you should be speaking with the the change agents that you're supposed to be working with whatever it is like those kind of open doors to systematize a little bit your approach to speed up your growth in the market if you're working on a b2b or enterprise product now that sounds brilliant but now let's maybe talk a little bit about the actual approach within the book 
so the lean B2B methodology, I guess you could call it, or framework or process or whatever we want to call it. I don't know what you call it. Do you have a favored word that you use? I've been using methodology, but all of these kind of work. Yeah. Let's talk about the lean B2B methodology. <laughs> so you frame this methodology via the B2B startup pyramid, which is brilliant. You know, everyone loves a graphic. Everyone loves a step-by-step process. So let's go through the levels of the pyramid, talk about some of the challenges and differences and what your book can do to help with those, but not so much that people don't need to buy either version of the book. Now, the top of the pyramid is all about starting off with a vision. So you're defining the product or the company that you want to create. Now, is this something that can in itself be systematized? Or is it the sort of thing that really relies on that, that kind of jumping out of the bath, shouting eureka type moment? I think it definitely is a starting point. Like, so if we look at the, uh, the pivot rates of companies and, and all this, like, that's kind of why I recommend starting with, with an idea of a vision because it gives you a direction as opposed to giving you a clear path. And then from there, you can explore different doors that, that are in line with that. I think the idea to define a vision is often, often stems from either what you mentioned before. So you have uh, people who work in an organization. They have seen opportunities. They've seen a need. They've seen uh, what's been going on. And that tends to be 40 to 50% of B2B founders. And then from there, there is all these other things where the starting point might not be as, as, as clear or people might not have a vision at all. I think the one of the big big ad from the the content there, and one thing that's kind of important as well is that that vision needs to be something that's solidified and shared across the the early team, whether that's just founders or that's founders plus employees, because a lot of a lot of what you're trying to do initially is, is set yourself up for success, so that the uh, pyramid, if we use that then metaphor again, doesn't get fragilized uh, uh, later on, like it doesn't become uh, something that can easily come falling down once your developer and your team uh, gets a better offer from uh, SAP, for example, <laughs> to use the worst example. Yeah, well, let's not talk about that. <laughs> but I mean, just on that, the kind of 50% industry expert versus presumably the other 50% that are not, I guess it's really tricky to think how someone who hasn't got expertise in, say, banking, unless they're just going from a complete tech first perspective like you know they, there's some technology that they know about and they, they think that that's something that could help with a use case and and they go with that i mean is that the best way in for a non-industry startup founder or wannabe founder to go like to start from some kind of technology and then try and find a problem that fits it because us product people hate that kind of idea you know we we're yeah, sitting there yeah. talking about outcomes over outputs and making sure that we're concentrating on the problem and the jobs to be done not sitting there getting obsessed with or falling in love with our technology so i guess the question is is that okay if they do that or is there a better way for them to find something i I don't look at it as okay or not okay because i think that's just the reality of the world (laughs) i think i like to reduce things what can i say yeah sure sure but like i I think there's always going to be people that either need to pivot from something else or they they were working in our r&d uh research and they figure out okay so this is interesting or they were they ended up with a product that does a couple things, but like there's always going to be these situations where founders will start with something that they already built because I think that's just the nature of people, but also the nature of how things evolve and technology and, and things change. So I think that's one way to look at it. I think the, the discussion between, between starting with your own domain expertise versus, versus uh, starting with, 
create your solution or an idea or, or things like that is really in relation to the time that you have. Uh, so, so one concept that I, that I talk about is a concept from Andrew Chan called uh, the time to product market fit, which is kind of the idea that time is a variable depending on how much money you're able to raise, how much money you have in the bank. And that, that sets a little bit the possible evolution of your business. So if you have a lot of cash in the bank, you're able to explore more broadly, maybe. But if you don't, you might want to need to focus on, on smaller use cases, something that you can actually de- deliver right now. So you kind of need to figure out what kind of runway do you have to be able to get things out the door. I find one thing that I find really interesting with people that are going in other industries that they don't know is because a lot of the products that people in, in product or in marketing and development will tend to think about are from their own industries. Yeah. which are probably more saturated. And there's a lot of other industries that have needs, that have opportunities that are super interesting that can be opened up by uh, exploring a little more broadly, but there's a cost to that. So it's understanding how that, that actually fits in. Personally, I think it's good to start with a vision, but then I go explore more, a little more broadly in segments and then figure out from there what are the opportunities. Yeah, and I guess also that vision could be somewhat transformative if you're not kind of institutionalized within that industry and can only think of things in the way that have always been done in that industry. So I guess there are pros and cons to that. But let's talk about then after that, we've got our vision. We know where we're going, or at least where we want to go. We're now talking about the second part of the pyramid, which is around defining a market, finding a wedge, and working out who you're going to go after. So what are some of the considerations when identifying a market for that initial offering or for the the vision that you're trying to bring about into the world? So, so the big idea there is that uh, these things are all uh, interrelated. So I use in my mother book, Solving Product, I use the, the metaphor of the Rubik's Cube uh, to kind of talk about the way your market relates to your, the, the problems that you're seeing or the job to be done that you're addressing. So it's all in context of this. So if you change market, you don't necessarily get the same opportunities. If you change stakeholders, you don't get the same opportunities. So if we're looking at it, and it's a little bit why I'm using the, the idea of a pyramid is because you need to solidify some of these, these learnings. So you need to identify a certain group of stakeholders that you want to serve. And then from there, figure out what the, the best problems to solve, but also the best ways to actually solve those problems for that, that audience. So you kind of need to understand these, these three different wheels that I define as a, as a wedge in the book, as uh, one being the market or a, a segment of the market. Uh, the other one being the job to be done, so what people are trying to get done. And within that context, what is the uh, differentiated value? So what value are you bringing to market? And one thing that I've been seeing in the last few years, it's that initial entry point needs to be a lot sharper or a lot that wedge needs to be a lot sharper or a lot more precise because things are moving all the time and you need to find a way to gain enough attention to be able to get stakeholders involved, want, have them want to give you feedback, have them want to get involved and get them to help you iterate and build something that is sustainable and can actually become a business. But some people, again, maybe going back to these industry experts that are starting companies up, are going to be fairly tempted to just go wide from the off, right? They'll be sitting there saying, well, we've got something that can solve problems for everyone. So yeah, let's go after everyone because then yeah. we've got the most chance of success. I mean, I'm going to guess that you're going to disagree with doing that. Well, there's a great quote from uh, Nathan Barry, who is the co-founder, the founder or the co-founder of ConvertKit. He's talking about how focusing on a niche is the easiest advice to give, but the artist one to take. I think that <laughs> kind of sums it up quite well. Like, so it's, it's, it's hard for people to understand 
well, so if I take a step back, so like the other book that I wrote before this is called Find Your Market. And it's about specifically understanding what a market is and, and how to, to kind of repivot the technology or product that you have in place. So I did a lot of customer research for this. I spoke to a lot of entrepreneurs, people that have products. And one thing that was really, really clear is that the idea of uh, what a market is, is not, not clear at all. So there's a lot of people <laughs> that don't understand how these things work. And you do need to factor that in, I think, in that thinking where uh, just the idea of like how different customers relate is very important initially because it helps you uh, learn the same thing or learn things that are at least giving you the right range of information so you can actually iterate quickly and get the right things through the door. So if if, if you are doing the other approach that you were mentioning where I'm, I'm, I'm shooting everywhere, I'm trying to speak to people in 16 different industries, that can work, but that will increase your time to product market fit because you will probably be building a, a product that kind of that doesn't have that that 10x edge yeah. that can really get companies to adopt because the core issue today is really to get that initial adoption like there's so many products that are coming out there's so many different variations why would i commit time and resources to learning how to figure out this product and make it work like there's a lot of there's a lot of risk there's a lot of uh, cost involved in adopting a new technology product especially if it's not proven so I need to be able to get over the hump initially to be able to convince companies to adopt so I can start learning, so I can start putting things together and, and then do the iteration process that's required to uh, get product market fit. Absolutely. And I'm thinking now of trademarking the concept of product markets fit just as a thing that people aim for. It's probably available as a domain name too. <laughs> Right. So after that, then we move on to the jury. And we're not just talking about legal tech here. We're talking about building up a coalition of stakeholders that you need to engage within that target market. So what sorts of people are you going after in this situation? And are there any sorts that you shouldn't? Yeah. So the idea of the jury is actually, uh, it's actually an interesting story because uh, I got that from the MIT Entrepreneurship Center. Oh, there you go. And they don't use that anymore. <laughs> oh. And they don't use that anymore. So it's equivalent a little bit to the uh, decision-making unit or the buying team. So there's different language uh, around that. So the idea there is that depending on the type of product that you're putting together, the buyers versus the, uh, the people who evaluate the technology or evaluate its merit and the people who are going to be using the product may be completely different people. Uh, so when that happens, it usually means that there's, there's at least someone who can veto the purchase, but there might be other people that actually need to... Uh, have their input into the, the purchase. So that complexifies the buying process. And that is something that you need to figure out, especially if you're working on products that are not transactional in, in B2B. It's a good idea to still understand that concept, even if you're working on something that is very transactional. So if you're working on Asana or something like that, or like a, a small version of Asana. Yeah. Because you need to understand who are the stakeholders that get involved with your product because their requirements ultimately will have an influence on whether the company buys and does the initial buying, but as well, do they actually stick around later on the retention story? So we've probably all bought software, uh, technology products or anything like that. At some point within the lifetime of the, the product, the products that we're using in the company, there's going to be someone in the company that will say, well, this is not the best product for this. I know this other product that I use at that, that other company that I worked at. And then the, <laughs> the, the wheel starts spinning. And then it might lead to churn and or it might lead to the product, yeah, people disengaging from the product. So just understanding all these different perspectives that are kind of add, adding up to the value that's expected by the organization 
is really good exercise to do initially. And if you're starting out, you kind of need to figure that out just to define the right product initially, because your buyer may not be the same person that actually is deciding on what product they're using and the technology uh, requirements might not even be understood by the other people. So if you only have one part of the story, you may be missing key uh, requirements that will lead to your product being the built the wrong way or being the wrong thing. No, absolutely. And it speaks to that general B2B tension of buyers and users and who you speak to and whether you need to speak to both and whether they want the same things. I guess from what you're saying, you definitely have buyers and then the kind of vetoers and all of those people that you need to basically get involved. But would you say that also the end users need to be on that panel as well on that jury? Or do you think that their needs and wants and desires are not necessarily going to map very easily to what you're trying to do from more of a vision perspective? I, I definitely think that they should. Uh, I think there's re- there's still realities where that's not necessarily as important as it should be. But you need to consider it as well that things are still evolving and that if we're factoring in a product like growth, for example, I think the entry point for technologies are going to be more varied moving forward. So it might not always be the uh, it might not always start at the top. It might start at the bottom. So you want to understand as well that the experience that you're putting in place need to be appealing to whatever stakeholder that are involved in the uh, the ultimate uh, discovery and, and decision-making process. Right, so we've done that bit, and now we move on to needs. So the next part of the pyramid. Now, we all know what needs are, but in the context of the Lean B2B, are we mainly talking about doing classic product discovery or customer development, whatever we want to call it? Or are we talking about something a bit different and a bit more specific to your approach? I think there's a lot of merit in a lot of the other great content on, on uh, customer discovery. I like the approach of Teresa Torres that I think you had as a guest. Yeah, oh, yes. Focusing more on stories. Yeah, uh, focusing more on stories and then having the, the other insights come out of that. I think that's a good way to have an entry point. I think the way you shape that opportunity afterwards, there, there's specific elements, but the, the fact the, the interview process, we're getting to a point where there's really good and, intelligence on that. And that's what I try to reflect in the book. No, that makes a lot of sense. And obviously, we always need to be speaking to people. And the more people we speak to, the more likely we are to be able to make good decisions for them. So again, can completely recommend Teresa Torres, Cindy Alvarez, all the other people out there that have written great books about that sort of stuff. But obviously, you touch on it in your book too. (laughs) But we've done all that. We know what we're going to do now. We've identified who we're going after. We have our jury. We know the problems that need to be solved. We're getting ready to make an offer. Now, this sounds simple, but I personally would probably argue that nothing's really that simple in B2B. So what are some of the key things to watch out for when you've done all of that work up front, you've done your discover and you've got to a point where you're confident that you've got something that you want to take back to them? Anything you really have to watch out for when you're going back to people within these businesses with that proposal? Yeah, so so the value of the product is the value that's diminished by the, the risk and the cost of switching. So you need to factor in the cost involved and the, the risks that are being brought on the, the company. So the, the cost might be the training that comes with the product, just the setup process, the actual monetary amounts that you need to, the company needs to pay, as well the attention that they'll need to divert to the, the, the solution. So you kind of need to understand their perspective so you can factor, figure out the, the right way to position your offering uh, in a way that makes sense. And at that stage, I personally recommend not to be too salesy or anything like that, or try to, <laughs> to create like a value proposition that just 
really connects or that, that's been tested and really works super well. Because what you're really trying to establish is the difference between what they have today and what they will get in terms of benefits. And if you're selling to people that are early adopters or early adopter-ish that have a mindset that's really focused on, on trying to find the, the intrinsic benefits of new technology and trying to get those competitive advantage in their company, they will be able to make that connection uh, themselves. So you want to make, make the way you position the value of your, your, your product as focused on, on what is the new thing that it is enabled, and then use that as a way to kind of test out their reaction and see what are the gaps with what you're doing. So in, in this edition of the book, I split up the, the uh, solution interviews in two different sections, two different tests. It's a little bit based on what uh, Sachin Reki. So basically, what he talks about is, is the value of separating the value proposition from the solution, because a value proposition can be addressed in multiple, multiple ways. Yep. So you're, you're, trying to, you're trying to minimize the, uh, the investment in terms of getting a good return or good feedback on, on the, the, the value that you're putting together. So you want to focus on the, the value and as minimum as possible of a, a solution to be able to just get feedback and start learning there and get that feedback cycle. So you can, you can start uh, learning about the actual benefits that you're thinking about putting in place. Yeah, that's super interesting and something that really resonates with me, this idea that you kind of want people to buy into the vision more than anything else. Yeah. You want to get things into people's hands, of course. There needs to be some kind of something that they can actually interact with in due course, but trying to just sell your not-quite-done solution yet to people because it's really early and it's very minimal, then if that's all you're basing your early sales on or your pre-sales or whatever it is that you're doing, then people are automatically going to start to compare you against much better solutions that do that in God knows how many different ways because of all the inbuilt advantages that they have from having been in the market for God knows how long. So yeah, I think absolutely that idea of separating solution from value is is really powerful. Yeah, and through that process, you're trying to build the relationships because there's like logically, it doesn't really make sense to buy from a startup that, that doesn't have any case studies, hasn't proven anything. It might be these two guys <laughs> or these two girls that are coming out from a city you've never heard of. Like, there's a lot of <laughs> things that are kind of kind of against the the founders. So factoring in that you need to kind of create that relationship that helps the company feel confident in making that purchase is really important. No, absolutely. Well, we've done all that. We're to the last stage of our pyramid, which is good because, you know, I know you're a busy man and you probably want to go and have some dinner or something, but we're now up for a solution and we're going to build out an MVP in true lean style. Obviously, lean B2B does suppose that we're going to be being a bit lean at some point. In fact, you could probably argue it's all been pretty lean so far, but we're going to the business end. We're making an MVP. Now, the concept of an MVP is a bit of a mess these days. And I think someone said to you once, if you ask 10 different people what MVP means, you'll get 11 different answers because people think it's either a prototype or it's a, a mock-up or it's a fully functional thing. They start thinking about MVP1 and MVP2 and MVP3. And there's not really any consistency. I personally don't like the term anymore because I think that it it's one of those things that just reflects whatever the person who listens to it thinks that it means and that may be yeah. not what it actually means but anyway let's assume that it does mean what it means we're putting out a basic minimal version of the of the thing that we can learn from and start to understand the value that people are going to get from it and where we should go next effectively based on that initial learning that we've made or that we've received but in some more risk-averse industries 
people don't really want to buy that kind of stuff. They don't want to pay you for it. They maybe don't even really want to participate in it because, you know, let's think of, say, a bank or something like that. Like, it's going to be tricky enough to get into those people in the first place, let alone getting some kind of half-baked solution in front of them to try and get feedback from them. So how minimal can your MVP really be if you're selling into some of these types of companies out there? Do you think this approach works for all of them or do you think that some need to be sort of beefed up a bit more? I think that's, one, it's a great question. Two, it's a, it's definitely a challenge that I've debated over in the past year, year and a half. So one of the the other person that, that reviewed the book is a CIO at a big company. And he was mentioning that he would never buy into this. But then there's other situations where companies do. So the I think the overarching message that I think kind of needs to come across here is that you're trying to minimize whatever you're putting together to be able to start learning and start iterating. So I agree, agree with uh, your thinking about the, the MVP. Like I've really debated about using the term in the book, <laughs> but it is a lean approach. And that's I was going to say, you can't it, have lean without MVP, right? Yeah, apparently. And <laughs> so, so that, that has been a big uh, debate, debate there. So I think ideally you go for the less cumbersome version of the product that you can put together that delivers some level of value in early on. The issue is that you need to deliver the outcome in full. So if, if they're buying into a certain certain type of uh, value, you need to be able to deliver that. I think one thing that is important to, to understand there is that you want that relationship to be un- understood as well, that that this is not the finished product. This is just... Yeah. So one person that I was, I, was, I was speaking with for the book was, was, was suggesting using the term proof of concept a little bit instead of uh, MVP, yeah. which kind of makes sense a little bit. Is, is we're setting something up. This is the first version. Tell us what you think. And then we're going to be iterating there. Like everything here, uh, none of this actually works if you're, if you're not building relationship, if you're not, you're not staying close to the prospects and you're not working closely with the organization. The more proximity you have in B2B, the more likely you are to be able to build the right thing, but as well build it the right way. So if you're, you're trying to, to, and that's the image that I, that I use on my website, is just throw something over the wall and then say, and try to look at analytics. I don't think you're going to be uh, successful in B2B. <laughs> and I would argue it's the same thing, even, even if you're working on something that's super transactional, you want to be as close as possible to the prospects. So the idea is to create a relationship that makes them comfortable in working with something that is very minimal understanding that there's a transition from from here to to the destination that they're actually trying to uh, to get to. One thing that I think is important to flesh out there as well is that you're trying everything that you ship should reinforce their belief that you are a good vendor that will be able to get them their uh, solution. So if you're 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 shipping something that is crappy and they they, they don't see a future in initially you're you're bas- they're basically going to disconnect. So there's a lot of pilot projects or free trials or whatever you want to call them that are that just get abandoned yeah and because they have other things to do and their prior their their time is is one of their most important assets you want to layer things so that in a way that convinces them progressively that you will give them the outcome that they actually seek that again makes a lot of sense so we've done all that we've got past the mvp we're out of the pyramid and we're into the post pyramid world and we're marching now, hopefully, towards product market fit. We talked about product market fit a little bit earlier and the time to product market fit versus just having some kind of solution that resonates with some early adopters and people that have spare change in their pocket that they're trying to get rid of. So what are some of the considerations 
for kind of what comes next, like on that march towards product market fit and making sure that you take the learnings from that MVP and go into a wonderful future and make loads of money? Is it just about kind of looping around and starting another pyramid or is it like a whole different world ahead of you after that? So it is about making the promises that you've put with your value proposition a reality so you can actually deliver what you were uh, you, you had promised. And hopefully you get to a sense of product market fit, which is another term that I wasn't 100% sure that I wanted to use in the book. <laughs> it is, however, uh, the, the way people understand that phase. I think if we look at it from a B2B perspective, the idea of product market fit is that what you put together is actually becoming a key component of the workflow or the work landscape of people for a specific job or specific uh, tasks that they're working on. So depending on the, the natural cadence of the job that you, you are addressing with your product, it's that a certain percentage or a certain part of the, the audience that you're, is using your product uses it for the, the benefits that were intended. And I've made it part of their workflow and part of their, their uh, reality. So I think that's where you get at. You want to you wanna get to a point where you've removed all the, the friction and you've, you've made the benefits so uh, tangible and great that your organization is just saying, ah, let's go with this. We're going to be uh, investing our future in this solution. And then we're going uh, to be in business. We're all going to be billionaires. But aside from the book, you're also starting up a lean B2B program certification program which i'm assuming covers a lot of this in more detail and goes a lot deeper and into even more depth and more richness than the book can ever get into but certifications don't necessarily have the best reputation in product circles or agile circles and probably lean circles as well if i check so what's the approach behind your certification and why do you think people should go and get one when it's coming out in a couple of months or months time or whenever that is yeah, yeah. I think you, you might be uh, noticing a pattern of, of me being uh, uneasy with certain terminology. <laughs> so, yeah, so certification, I think it makes sense. There's, there's different benefits around that. So I'm putting together a certification because there is, I get a lot of feedback from different organizations that are trying to address, uh, adopt the, the methodology. There's, there's gaps, there's things that are not working. So I'm trying to help uh, entrepreneurs, innovation leaders, product teams adopted methodology fully that involves obviously the fact that that there is a lot there's more hands-on work that's required to actually apply something uh, a little more fully in in organization as you've definitely seen with agile and other different methodologies just trying to bridge (laughs) the gap between what's in a book and how that can actually work within the context of the organization but also how you can actually make the the relationship aspect of the, the implementation of, the, of their work work as well. So it's, it's connecting all these different parts that people need to deal with in an organization. And the idea is to be able to put, put all that together. The reason why I'm putting it as a certification is because there are people who are selling my methodology as uh, their work. So that's one part <laughs> as well. There's people in organizations that are in that direction as well, that are the go-to expert for things around that. So I'm trying to just formalize that and make that as valuable as possible. Uh, so you're basically fighting back against the counterfeiters and the fraudulent B2B experts out there and trying to <laughs> reclaim it for yourself. Not at all, actually. I'm, 
I'm super happy that people are innovating in B2B, whatever the format is. <laughs> and I think that's one thing that I'm trying to uh, get across is that like, there's not one size fits all. Yeah. But there are different paths that work better or different decision points that kind of need to be understood in certain situations uh, that can help increase the success rate of B2B ventures as a if we're bookending <laughs> the, the whole thing. No, absolutely. And I'm sure you get a lovely certificate with a frame as well. And where can people find you after this if they want to find out more about the book, building B2B products in general, or maybe even check out whether they get that lovely certification in a frame? So I'm uh, lucky in the sense where my name is a little bit weird or, or, or different. I'm the only uh, Etienne Garbugli on the internet. So you can find me by just typing my name. Otherwise, it's uh, <laughs> leanb2b.co or leanb2bbook.com. And then I can, you should be able to find your way from there. All right. Well, I'll make sure to link that all into the show notes and hopefully you'll get a few early adopters or jurists or whatever we want to call them heading in your direction to find out a little bit more. <laughs> well, that's been a fantastic chat. So obviously really appreciate you taking the time to talk about some really important topics and wave the flag once more for building B2B products. Yeah, something that's very dear to my heart. Uh, obviously, we'll stay in touch. But as for now, thanks for taking the time. Thank you. Thanks for having me. As always, thanks for listening. I hope you found the episode inspiring and insightful. If you did, again, I can only encourage you to pop over to onenightinproduct.com, check out some of my other fantastic guests, sign up to the baby list or subscribe on your favorite podcast app and make sure you share with your friends so you and they can never miss another episode again. I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thanks and good night.